We're going to have our reading now. Uh, children, you might remember we've started a little series in the run-up to Christmas, looking at the different characters that make up uh, the traditional nativity scene. Uh, and this morning we're looking at the wise men. So we're going to read from uh, the Gospel according to Matthew uh, and chapter 2. Uh, Matthew chapter 2 and the first 12 verses. Uh, Matthew chapter 2 and verses 1 through 12. Let's hear the Spirit's voice to his people this morning. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Uh, let's pray. Uh, and then uh, we'll look at this passage together. Uh, again, a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer that, that fits uh, this reading. Our Lord, our God, who by the leading of a star did make known your only begotten Son to the Gentiles, mercifully grant that we which know you now by faith may after this life have the fruition of your glorious Godhead through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, the wise men in some ways are the mysterious, most mysterious figures uh, of the Christmas scene. Uh, we know what shepherds are. We understand Joseph, the carpenter, Mary, the young bride. But wise men, uh, what are they doing? Who are they? And what do they add to our understanding of, of Jesus Christ? Uh, I said last week that the reason we're looking at each of these figures is not so much to examine them closely, but see how each one points to Christ. Uh, when I was uh, young, we had a little uh, set of figurines that, that made up the nativity set that, that mum would get out uh, at Christmas and if you imagine that kind of, if you've seen those sort of figures, imagine that each one is pointing at Jesus in, in, the, in the crib, in the manger. Uh, that is what we're using these figures for. What do they teach us? Not about themselves, but about Christ. And very simply this morning, I want to look at three elements uh, of our story. We're not going to go through every verse of the reading we've just uh, read as if we were preaching through Matthew uh, normally. But rather, I want to look at three elements, the wise men, the star and the gifts. And each, I think, tell us something about Christ. So let's look at the wise men. Uh, they're perhaps best known to us from the carol, aren't they? We three kings of Orient are. Now, at least two elements of that first line are wrong, aren't they? Uh, aren't they? Uh, first of all, uh, these people are described in Matthew 2 as, well, wise men. Matthew 2 verse 1. 
behold wise men from the east. As a little footnote, if you've got the SVE saying magi, um, the, the word is, is uh, the word magoi, magi, from which we get our word magician. And we're never told there are three of them. Uh, they they give golds of uh, give gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh at the end of our story. Um, so people have sort of reasoned, well, maybe it was one gift each. But that's a kind of you know English polite middle class way of bringing gifts, isn't it? Each one brings one gift. We've no idea. Maybe two wise men bought three gifts. Maybe ten wise men bought three gifts. Who knows? But from the Orient, from the East, they certainly are. Uh, who are they? Well, we don't get much detail, but if we've read our Old Testament, we've already come across wise men, magi. Uh, we've come across them on a number of occasions, uh, in fact, but two occasions in particular, I think, help us understand this story. Uh, th- those two occasions uh, come at the court of great empress. First of all, Pharaoh in Genesis, in the time of Joseph. Uh, and then secondly, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon in the east, in the time of Daniel. Now, Joseph and Daniel, children, if you remember that the stories of them in the Old Testament, they actually have very similar stories. And particularly that the stories where they interact with the wise men at the courts of their their great kings, well, they they parallel each other. They're very similar. So in both their stories, we begin with the emperor having a dream that troubles him. Remember, Pharaoh had a dream about the cows, the fat cows that get eaten by the the slim cows uh, and the big sheaves of corn that, that swallow up the narrow ones. And Nebuchadnezzar has a strange dream that he just can't interpret. And so both Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar summon their magi, their wise men, and ask, well, well, interpret my dream to me. And both sets of wise men fail. It's part of what the stories are doing. They they can't interpret the dreams. Uh, The best of, of human wisdom fails. And then in both stories, a high court official remembers that they've got a captive out back. Somebody's been taken prisoner, an Israelite who's been brought into this foreign court. And they remember that, that this guy seems quite good with dreams. So they go and fetch the captive, bring him to the emperor. Uh, he then, through the power of God, interprets the dream to Pharaoh and to Nebuchadnezzar, Joseph and Daniel both. And then they are raised to the position of prominence And in each of those stories, part of the point is that God's wisdom, God's wise man is conquering the wise men of the the earth. The wise men of the the non-God kingdoms. Uh, It's all about the triumph of God's wisdom over human wisdom. Uh, It is the conquering of the wise men, the conquering of the Magi, we might say. Interestingly, both Daniel and Joseph are rewarded Joseph with gold and Daniel, in part at least, with incense. Hmm, interesting. Well, how does that help us understand what's going on in this story? Well, here we have some more wise men. And what do they do? Well, they come. We'll think about the journey later. But big picture, what do they do? They come and they bow down and worship Jesus. Verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Now, that is extraordinary. Now, perhaps we got too used to cute little nativity scenes. Uh, our children dressing up with little paper crowns on it and walking down the aisle to join the shepherds and the angels. But this, these are the highest ranking men in the East. Okay, the political advisors, the chief scientists, uh, the, the poet laureates coming and bowing 
to, to a babe in arms. Uh, this is David Attenborough, the head of the civil service, Richard Branson, Bill Gates, whoever might be seen in the world up there as the, the wise men, coming and kneeling before an infant. Uh, what's going on? Well, yet again, God's wisdom is triumphing, being seen to be uh, all-conquering, greater than the wisest of human wisdom. Uh, with Daniel and Joseph, both seemed unlikely candidates, captives, slaves, young men, both. But here it seems even more unlikely, doesn't it? A baby is getting the cream of the intelligentsia to bow before him. Uh, what's an extraordinary for, for us in particular, living many centuries later, is these wise men, they've not seen Jesus perform any miracles. They've not seen him walk on water or turn water into wine. They've not heal him heal the sick, uh, make the dead rise. They've not heard him preach uh, his great parables or the Sermon on the Mount. And certainly they haven't seen him crucified, risen and ascended into heaven. And yet already they know enough to know that here true wisdom is found. Uh, here they need to take off their own crowns. Okay, take off their own uh, university gowns and hoods and lay them down before the crib of Christ. They know here is real wisdom. Last week with Joseph, uh, we thought about the scandal and the shame of discipleship. Uh, we thought a little bit about how for, for Joseph, it just would have meant bearing great shame uh, to take Mary pregnant as his wife. Uh, to say to his friends, yes, I, I am sticking with her because the child in her is from the Holy Spirit. She is still a virgin uh, and yet is going to give birth to God's son. Uh, we could feel the shame, the scandal. And uh, we thought a little bit about how that reflects the, the way that all disciples of Christ at some point bear shame and scandal. Uh, here, it's not so much shame that the wise men would be feeling as potential foolishness. It doesn't look wise to worship a baby. It certainly doesn't look wise to worship the baby of a teenage couple in a little house in a backwater village, in a backwater country. I mean, if this was the king, uh, the emperor's son, well, maybe. But here, the carpenter's adopted child. It looks foolish. Uh, surely the wise men's. Uh, colleagues and friends would be looking at him and saying, what are you doing? You're smart. You're intelligent. You cannot be serious worshipping a baby human. And yet it's clear that they're making the wisest decision possible. Wisdom in the Bible, God's wisdom, looks foolish very often to human eyes. And that pattern that is set at the crib continues to the cross. Paul says that the cross is foolishness to unbelievers, foolishness to the world. And that makes sense, doesn't it? If you're trying to explain to someone, what is Christianity? If you were to say, well, Christianity is, is about trying your best to be kind to people. It's a kind of glorified version of the Cub Scouts. Promise to do your best, to do your duty to God and the Queen. Well, they don't, that makes sense. OK, people get that. Yeah, I understand that it's good to try hard to be the best version of yourself. I understand it's good to try hard to be kind and loving and generous. I can understand maybe that it's good to say prayers sometimes or 
But that's not what Christianity is. If your understanding of, of the Christian message is try your best and then God will give you the okay. That let me say you've completely misunderstood the Christian message. That is worldly wisdom, but not God's wisdom. In the New Testament, God makes clear that the only way to heaven is through the cross. And it sounds so foolish, doesn't it? Uh, the answer to everything, the key to life, the way that the gates of heaven are going to be thrown open is through this baby who was born and laid in a cradle in a crib, growing up and going to a cross, stripped naked and crucified. It looks foolish. If you're a Christian, you, you'll perhaps know this. You, you want to talk to your friends and family and colleagues about Jesus, but it feels so foolish. I mean, if we could just point to something impressive to, to show our friends. Look, look, um, the reason you should follow Jesus is, well, I, I was ill and there was an amazing miracle. I was, I was healed and it all went away. And there you go. There's something tangible for them to see. If perhaps we could do some miracles, if we could just walk on water, if we could just turn some water into wine, will there be something impressive? That's how, surely, God would show his power to the world. But no, his power comes through weakness. His wisdom looks foolish. And Paul says he does that to shame the world, to show us that we're not sufficient in ourselves. All this means that the wisest thing you can do is join the wise men in kneeling before the crib. And more significantly too, kneeling before the cross. The cross is God's way of saving you. Don't go anywhere else. And whatever sacrifice it means, or it may mean, uh, for your public image, it is worth it. At times you may have to sacrifice your career for the sake of Christ, and it will look foolish Friends, perhaps family, will say to you, what are you doing? Don't throw it all away for this Jesus. But the wise men would call to you from heaven now and say, yes, throw it away for Jesus. That is wisdom. How foolish to cling on to what you cannot keep and lose Christ, eternal life. At other times, people will say, well, well be sensible with your money. Perhaps the voice in your own head. But be sensible. I mean, sort yourself out first, look after yourself. If there's a little bit left over, well, perhaps you can give that away. Charity's a good thing, isn't it? But Christ, in his wisdom, says, no, everything is mine. Don't hedge your bets. What may look foolish to the world is wise in God's eyes. As Christians, perhaps we need to, perhaps we need to sort of reflect on our own lives. Do they basically look wise to the world around are our lives more or less the kind of lives that everyone else is living? It's just that on Sunday morning we, we go to church or we flick on YouTube. No, they're meant to look foolish in the eyes of the world. That is what discipleship looks like. But foolishness in the eyes of the world is true wisdom in the eyes of God. The wise men. Secondly, the star. Uh, OK, you say, well... I mean, perhaps if I saw a star, okay, a miraculous star appearing in the east and got led to, to the birthplace of a, of a virgin, well, okay, then I'd be on board with all this foolishness. But I don't have that sort of star experience. I've not seen this kind of miracle. Well, let's look a little bit more carefully at the star. Uh, it pops up for the first time when, when the, uh, the wise men explained to King Herod in Jerusalem. 
Uh, they explained that they saw a star when it rose, or rather they saw a star in the east, potentially, uh, and they followed it, and it has led them to Jerusalem. Now, there's been all sorts of theories and explanations about what's going on with this star, as you might imagine. There are scientific expla- uh, explanations. Uh, Dr. David Hughes, who's a, a scientist at uh, Sheffield University, um, has worked out kind of how the stars would have looked uh, back in the time, around the time Jesus was born. Uh, Saturn and Jupiter apparently aligned three times in 7 BC. And in the way that the people understood the stars back then, uh, that was symbolic. Uh, Saturn was was a uh, an image of the old king in, in their understanding, Jupiter the young king. Uh, and the way they, the, the Pisces, the sort of star sign they came into, uh, that was associated with the Jews. So we've got a sort of old king being replaced by a new king. Uh, and that, for David Hughes, is an explanation of what's going on here. Maybe. Who knows? Colin Humphreys, Professor of Material Science at Cambridge, has worked out there was a comet in 5 BC, which is about the time Jesus was born. We don't know the exact date. Uh, we do know that, that the monk who worked out the dating got it wrong, so it wasn't just bang on the dot. It was sometime BC, funnily enough. And recently, another guy, Professor Colin Nichols, uh, over in Northern Ireland, has suggested that, that there was another comet about 7, 6 BC, uh, and has, has sort of scientifically spoken about how the, the tail of a comet can point to a particular village or town or even home. All of which may be true, but we just don't know. We just don't know. It's equally possible that this star is something completely supernatural. I mean, it's obviously not a sort of huge ball of burning gas that's come near. But, but maybe it is just a light that God had caused to appear in the sky. Maybe it's the glory cloud. Some people have thought it's the, the shining kind of pillar that led the Israelites through the desert. We just don't know. Science will not answer that question for us. But scripture can help us understand what's going on. Uh, why is it that these wise men, looking and seeing this light, knew to follow it and, and, and came looking for a king? It's not just they saw a star and followed it and sort of wondered what would happen. No, in verse 2, they're looking for a king. Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And that's why we need scripture more than science to interpret this star to us. Now, there's actually several passages in the Old Testament we could look at, but let me name just one. Uh, in Numbers, the book of Numbers uh, and verse 24, sorry, chapter 24 and verses 17 and 18, we get a prophecy uh, by a guy called Balaam. Uh, and he he looks ahead and he sees in sort of mysterious ways a star uh, and a star and a king being linked. So here's uh, Numbers 24 and verse 17. Uh, Balaam says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him but not near. Someone's coming, but not yet. I can see him, but he's not near yet. Balaam is speaking this in the second millennia BC. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. There's a star and a scepter uh, in Israel. In other words, a star and a king are linked together. A scepter children It is what the king holds. It's the kind of stick he holds to show his authority. And what will he do? Well, the passage goes on. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of all the people of Sheth. Edom will be conquered. He's going to conquer this king. Particularly Edom's in trouble. Now, that's probably why Herod gets worried. Herod is an Edomite. King Herod is an Edomite. He's not a Jew. He's not an Israelite. He's on the throne of the Jews, the throne of Israel in Jerusalem. But he's a pretender. He's actually an Edomite. Uh, so, as his court theologians know the Old Testament, which they clearly do because they're about to reference another prophecy from Micah in just a moment, uh, it is perhaps not surprising that Herod is worried. We've got a star, 
we've got some wise men turning up saying there's a king being born, and we know from numbers that the star and the king are going to crush the Edomites. So it is likely passages like that that led the wise men uh, to expect a king being born. Now, these wise men are from the east. They're, they're not Israelites, so we might think, well, they wouldn't have the Old Testament. But remember, the Jews have been scattered at the end of the Old Testament, and they were scattered particularly to the east. God's people were taken out of Israel to Babylon uh, in the east. That's where Daniel is with all those wise men. And it's very likely that they have taken their scriptures with them. In fact, of course they've taken their scriptures with them. So the most natural understanding is these wise men have some knowledge of the scriptures and these prophecies. So when the star appears, whatever it may be scientifically, they can link it with the scriptures. But most significantly, we need to see in Matthew 2 that it's not the star that gets the wise men all the way to Jesus. The star gets them, first of all, to Jerusalem. But then they have to ask the question, verse 2, where is he, this king? And they're in Jerusalem, whereas Jesus is in Bethlehem. That they're not in the house. They haven't got to the manger. And they have to have a, a discussion. So Herod is worried about this. Uh, wise men are often king makers. There was no king in the east at this day. The Roman Empire had conquered everything. So these wise men aren't kings, but they are the, the courtiers of kings. So when the wise men turn up saying, we're looking for the king, well, Herod worries. And so he calls, verse 4, the chief priests, the scribes, that's the theologians together, and says, well, where is this Christ, this king to be born? And they look to the book of Micah. They look to the Old Testament. Uh, Micah was a prophet around the same time as Isaiah, about 700, 730 BC. And verse 6 gives us a little excerpt from one of his prophecies. And it tells us that it's in Bethlehem in the land of Judah uh, that the king will be born. Now, what's the significance? There's all sorts of things we might talk about. Incredible that 700 years before Jesus, his birth is predicted in, in the little village, Bethlehem, in which it happens. But for our purposes today, see how that it is scripture that ultimately gets the wise men to Jesus, not just the star. The star is not enough. It gets them to Jerusalem. But then it's only when the wise, the, sorry, the, the, the scholars of scripture say, no, he's going to be born in Bethlehem that Herod sends them on to Bethlehem. And then the star seems to reappear. Uh, verse 9, And behold, the star they'd seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. They need scripture. The star isn't enough. And that is good news for us, isn't it? You're not going to get some sort of miraculous sign to, to lead you to Jesus in the first place. If you're watching this as someone who's not yet a Christian. And if you are a Christian, you're not going to get miraculous signs to confirm your faith along the way. But what you do have is scripture. In fact, you've got more scripture than the wise men had or the theologians at Herod's court. It is scripture that, that brings us to Christ. The Bible, in other words, that brings us to Christ. Martin Luther put this beautifully. Uh, he said this, Christ is completely wrapped in scripture as the body in the swaddling clothes. Okay, Christ is wrapped in the pages of scripture. Children, when you, when you see little nativities at school, if you're allowed to do them this year, um, the baby is wrapped in swaddling clothes, okay, little baby blankets. And Luther is saying, look, Jesus is wrapped in the page of Scripture. If you want to find him, if you want to look at his face, it's to Scripture that you must go turn its pages and they will reveal him. He goes on, preaching is the crib in which he lies and is set. 
and from it we get our food. As the Bible is taught to us, that's where we see Christ. That's where we meet him. And again, it doesn't look wise, does it? And it doesn't look impressive. It seems foolish to invest time in reading the Bible each day when you could be getting on with practical things. Perhaps you're a harassed mum. You've got lots to do. Get ready uh, for the, the, the kids ready for school. You've got to tidy the house. You've got to get packed lunches done. Uh, there's 101 admin things need to do. And it just makes sense to get on with them rather than spend time with God in Scripture. Uh, perhaps you're... Uh, Busy at work, tired from a stressful day, lots of things to sort out, diary appointments to arrange. It doesn't make sense to stop and spend time in scripture. Perhaps come Sunday you're exhausted. It makes no sense to come along to church. Certainly not to come along twice. Certainly not to bother with Sunday school or or midweek group or whatever it might be. But it's scripture that is able in Paul's words to make us wise for salvation. 2 Timothy 3, it's not just the scriptures save you, they're able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Scripture makes you wise. Again, it looks foolish, like wise men bowing before a baby, but actually delivers wisdom because it brings you Christ. And that is the purpose of, of your Bible study. Okay, even the, the phrase Bible study, I, I don't like an awful lot, if I'm honest. We're not analysing a text like we might do a Shakespeare sonnet for Jesus the English. No, we come to unwrap Christ as he's wrapped in the pages of Scripture. We come to meet him. That is the purpose. He reveals himself through these words. Again, unlikely looking. Surely the God who created the universe would do something better than a book. But his ways are not our ways. It may be that as you listen to the Bible taught, and sometimes, frankly, it won't be taught very well at Christ Church. I know that. I recognise that. Or as you sit and read it on your own, it doesn't have the same wow factor as a star appearing in the sky. But that's okay. Again, it's not in the outwardly powerful seeming ways that God comes, but in the seemingly weak and foolish ways. The cross again, the cross and the cradle both tell us all the power of God was in that cradle. God himself who'd taken on a human nature. And yet what looks weaker than a baby, less impressive? Uh, the, The wise men worshipped. But nothing special happened. And yet they were worshipping the king of the universe. God's wisdom looks foolish. God's power looks weak. And yet both are salvation. And so as we close, let's think about these gifts. Uh, In verse 17, they fall down, they worship, they give these gifts. Gold, frankincense and myrrh. What's going on? I remember when I used to do lots of children's work and youth work. It was very convenient to say gold for a king, frankincense for a sacrifice. You know, uh, frankincense went with the sacrifices and myrrh for death. Uh, Jesus is a king who's going to sacrifice his life by dying for us. Lovely, tied up, job done. I think that's probably a bit too neat. Uh, I think that's a bit too neat. Uh, th- those different gifts are not associated with those different things very tightly uh, in Scripture. Uh, so why these gifts? Well, what are they meant to teach us? Well, certainly they're meant to remind us again of the Old Testament. Uh, we've already thought about this theme of wisdom, lots. Uh, the wisest king of the Old Testament was Solomon. And one of the most famous stories about Solomon is where the Queen of Sheba, who comes from the east, in 1 Kings 10, she comes and she gives the king 120 talents of gold, a great quantity of spices, that's what myrrh and frankincense are, and precious stones. And later in that same chapter, we read that actually all sorts of the kings of the earth uh, came and brought gifts to Solomon. Uh, in particular, we're told that he was brought uh, articles of silver, gold, 
um, clothes, myrrh, spices, horses, mules, and so on year by year. So certainly part of what's being reinforced here is the idea that Christ is the true wise king, even greater than Solomon. Solomon, at the height of his powers as an adult, had these gifts brought to him. Jesus, a baby, already has more wisdom than Solomon. But I think there's a little bit more. And here again, we need to think in pictures. Matthew doesn't stop and explain everything, does he? Okay, he's telling a story and we're meant to pick up uh, the meaning and the message from the story rather from the narrator constantly butting in and saying, this means this and this means that. What's going on? We have wise men from the east. We're told they're from the east. That is emphasised. East in the Bible is, is, is the place you go when you've been sent away into exile. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they were sent east, we're told. Uh, when Israel are driven out of the land, they're sent east. When you leave the tabernacle, or, um, the, 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 the picture of God's presence, his house, it was all set up so when you left, you went east. It was always east, east, east. East is the direction of going away from God. Hear what happens. Wise men come from the east, west, back to God. They are coming to God, to the house of God, in fact. They come down in verse 11 into the house. This is the house of God's son. The temple in the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the house of God. Here is the true house of God because Jesus lives in it. They are coming from exile back home to God's house, back to paradise, as it were, uh, in the tabernacle. Uh, the, the place where God symbolically dwelt in that, that glorious cloud. Uh, in the tabernacle itself, which is the central bit, the, the two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place. Everything was made of gold. Out in the courtyard, bronze and other things. Gold in the centre of God's house. And constantly burning was incense. And I wonder if that's the picture that is being painted here. That these wise men come away, come from the east, back west, come to the house of God's son. And they bring gold and incense, the very things that filled God's house in the days of the Old Testament. This is why they're wise. They know Jesus is the gateway back to paradise, the gateway back to Eden, the gateway to glory, the place where heaven and earth meet. That's why they rejoice greatly. And verse uh, at 10, uh, literally, it says they, uh, yeah, verse 10, sorry. Uh, they rejoiced with joy, great exceedingly. The words kind of tumble over each other. They rejoiced with joy, great exceedingly. Because here is the king. Here is the gateway to paradise. Here is the true tabernacle, the true temple, the true place where you can meet God in his house. Again, it looked like nothing. An ordinary house in an ordinary village, in an ordinary country, in a very ordinary part of the world. Ordinary family with an ordinary child in an ordinary manger. And yet it was the gateway to paradise. So to the cross. An ordinary looking man hanging on an ordinary looking cross, executed by ordinary looking soldiers on an ordinary hill outside an ordinary city on an ordinary day in an ordinary month, in an ordinary year. And yet at the cross, God was tearing open the heavens. The, the temple curtain was torn in two to show us that we can now go in. How foolish you think it is to follow Christ. How foolish the world thinks it is to follow Christ. It is true wisdom. Nothing you do for his sake, no gift you bring him, no sacrifice you make for him is wasted because you're bringing it to the God of the universe, the son of God who made all things. 
So what kind of life are you going to live? Uh, wise in the way of Nebuchadnezzar's magicians and Pharaoh's magicians? Or wise like these wise men kneeling before Christ, bringing him all that you have, seeing that he is the source of true wisdom? And whatever scorn and mockery comes from the world, it is worth it for the sake of sticking with God's son who came to die in order that the gates of paradise might be opened. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have sent your son uh, into the world, that in him is found true wisdom. In, his is found, in him is found all the answers to all our questions. Uh, everything we need lay in that manger for us, for our sake. We pray, therefore, that we wouldn't go anywhere else for true wisdom. We wouldn't think that anyone else has the, the keys to understanding this world, this life. Uh, anyone else has the keys to eternal life, the answer to death. Anyone else can teach us how to live, how to work, uh, how to grow, how to flourish in this world. Instead, we join the wise men and kneel before the manger and knowing that Christ is your son, uh, that in him are all the treasures uh, we could ever need. So, Father, give us faith to see. Give us wisdom to flee foolishness and give us courage to stand with him, whatever the cost. We ask in his name. Amen.